0: Good morning to you. Good morning. The Bible tells us the wisest man who ever lived was King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 1.9, this wise man wisely noted, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. In this, our last Sunday in Nehemiah, we shall see that indeed there is nothing new under the sun. Old foes from many chapters ago reemerge and must be repurged. In addition to old foes uh, finagling a toehold, old temptations regrip the nation. In regards to their giving, the people again fail to tithe as they had in their past, so the Levites are, are forced to farm to feed their families and leave the Lord and His ministry. In regards to their worship, the Sabbath is not kept as holy. God's people are working their wine presses, the text tells us. They're they're gathering their grain, they're loading their donkeys, and all on the Sabbath day. So blatant was the flagrance of this offense that foreigners were openly selling their wares in the holy city, and no one seems to care by Nehemiah 13 in regards to the idolatry that formerly took them into captivity it again grips the nation the people god's people were supposed to be separated from well those were the very ones they were marrying into it had gotten so bad the bible says that half of the hebrew children could not speak the language of zion they couldn't understand the bible they couldn't understand each other in their mother So instead of God's people impacting their world for God's glory, the world was impacting God's people to their shame. Now we've seen all this before in the book of Nehemiah. This isn't new. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. God's solution in this passage is not new either. God recalls a great leader. Nehemiah is brought back from Persia where he had returned to Artaxerxes' service as his cupbearer. Remember in the first few chapters, that's where we first found Nehemiah. Nehemiah returns to Israel only to witness the depths from which God's people have fallen. And he's rightly stoked to righteous indignation and unto swift and decisive action. Nehemiah, the strong biblical leader, is having none of this. He he cleanses God's house and kicks out Tobiah the louse. uh, Nehemiah reassembles those Levites and he he puts them back at their posts, serving the Lord of hosts. Nehemiah uh, reinstitutes God's law, prompting God's people to again fill God's storehouses so that God's work can be done throughout the land. Nehemiah bars the gates on the Sabbath day And he even threatens to come to blows with those who refuse to be moved from their lucrative Sabbath endeavors. Nehemiah fearlessly will confront the compromisers. He will call down God's curses upon unbiblical unions among the people. And and you know what? Some folks don't like it. And so they reject it. But Nehemiah does not back down. Instead, surprisingly, and I'm sure quite unnervingly for those stroppy and surly among them, Nehemiah gets actually physical. He gets into physical confrontations, beating some and pulling the hair out of others. Now, I'm glad we're in the New Testament where we live. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, they they took these things seriously and it required serious action and a firm hand from a strong leader. It's sort of like a good Western. Nehemiah 13. Sort of like a good Western, the sheriff is now back in town. And the bad guys, well, they better scatter. So we have seen this before. And it reinforces the biblical maxim and historical truism that there is nothing new under the sun. While Nehemiah is a bit older, he is no less bolder. Godly zeal, friends, should not mellow as we age. It was like Caleb who at age 80 had the gumption to take his mountain for the Lord by faith in Joshua's day at 80. So Nehemiah is going to tackle each challenge head on. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. And he does not waver there either in our chapter. Nehemiah uh, bathes all he does in this chapter in fervent, focused prayer. Our 31 verses contain four separate prayers just in this one chapter. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. The bad guys are still bad, the good guys are still good, and the compromisers are still looking for an opening in their self-serving vacillating I want you to notice that the absence of a strong, godly leader led to rapid degradation among the people of God. Whereas the presence of a strong, godly leader led to rapid and robust reformation among the people of God. We see this again and again in the Bible and in human history. Don't we? Yeah. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 1.9 is spot on. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. With that in mind, I'd like for you to turn to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13 is on page 517 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Um, Seems like one of our spots is out. Maybe you guys can turn that one on that goes right over me. That would be helpful. As we turn to the word of the Lord, let's first turn to the Lord of that word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you today uh, to speak to us from the Scriptures. This is our last look at Nehemiah. And while there's nothing new under the sun, that means what was true for them is true for us. And all the progress that that is carefully, meticulously won through sweat and toil and perseverance and prayer can be lost rapidly when we let go of the reins and the horse bolts in directions and the cart gets separated and things fall apart. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would help us to take these truths to heart, that we would learn the lessons of history and not be doomed to repeat them, that we might be wise and take in the knowledge and apply it to our hearts, our life, our families, our church, for Your good and Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a few verses today, so bear with me. Nehemiah chapter 13 Uh, Begins with this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So, Back in the past, they were supposed to avoid the Ammonites because way back in the past, the Ammonites tried to curse God's people. Now, Tobiah is an Ammonite. He has no business being among God's people. And where is he living in our passage? In the temple. Huh. Now, verse 4 is an important time marker. Verse 1 is an important time marker. Verse 4, now before this, that is, before that, Eliashib the priest, before the people read that law... Now before this, Eliasheb the priest, not the high priest, the priest, because there's two Eliashebs in our passage, so pay attention. Eliasheb the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. So now God's house is empty, I'll just put Satan's louse in God's house. Previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by the commandments to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So when Tobiah returned, Nehemiah was not there. The Bible makes that clear. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 42nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. He went back to service as a cupbearer as he had promised way back in the beginning when he first came. Now, After some time, Nehemiah comes back. After some time, I asked leave of the king. I want to go back and see how things are going in Jerusalem. And and I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib the priest had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry." And I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Because the Word of God would have forbidden this entirely. And I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain and the offerings of the frankincense. And then I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. They hadn't been paid to do the work of the Lord. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they fled to their field. They had to feed their families because the faithful were no longer faithful. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. And then all of Judah, they obeyed. They brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil in the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses certain people. And then verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. That's the first prayer of our passage. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. It wasn't one or two people. It was a whole bunch of people. It wasn't one or two traders. It was anybody and everybody that could make a buck no matter what God's Word said about that. And so I warned them on the day when they sold the food. And then there were foreigners, Tyrians, from the city of Tyre and Sidon by the coast. Tyrians also who lived in the city, foreigners in the city. They brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they sold them on the Sabbath to the people in Judah in Jerusalem itself, God's holy city. And so then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring about all the disaster to us on this city? Isn't this why we were taken into captivity? Because we wouldn't follow God's word? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He had a simple solution to stop the trading. He shut down the city. I'm sure that was inconvenient. I'm sure everybody enjoyed that. But it stopped the problem. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, because their servants were compromised, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They wanted to see, will this go away? Can we bribe these people? Can we come in? But I warned them, and I said to them, why do you lodge outside this wall? If you do it again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And from that time, they didn't come on the Sabbath. A warning wasn't enough. There had to be the threat of force. Why do you lodge against the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites, they should purify themselves, because they had gone off into secular employment, and come and guard those gates, and to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he prays again, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. These are non-Israelites. These are things they were forbidden to do. And half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of those foreign peoples. That's the challenge. When when, when, When you bring into your house folks who don't worship the living God, your children grow up confused, and some of them grow up looking and acting and thinking like they don't know the Lord at all. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. Now you are got to remember this same thing happened to Ezra and what did he do? He wept and he plucked his own beard. But Nehemiah was a different kind of dude. And God had sent a gentle servant many years before for the same problem. And now he sends a not-so-gentle servant because he's tired of it and he wants it to end. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? That is, our greatest king failed because of this very area. Can you not learn from that great situation? Among the nations, there was no king like him. That is Solomon. He was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, it was the foreign wives that, that brought him into the worship of foreign gods. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by doing the same thing? He basically asks. And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib the high priest. So there's Eliashib the high priest at the end of the chapter and there's Eliashib the priest. Two different Eliashibs. Okay? And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib the high priest, who was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Wait a minute. So you're telling me the grandson of the high priest of the people of God has intermarried with the chief enemy of God in our story. And the answer to that is yes. Therefore I chased him from me. Get out. You're fired. You're no longer a priest. You're a compromiser. You're an enemy. Get out. 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. He prays again. And thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites. He goes back to saying you're supposed to do what God told you to do, and you're supposed to do it God's way. And I provided the wood of the offering and the appointed times and for the four fruits. And that cost him money, the wood. It took a tremendous amount of wood. He, he paid that price apparently himself. And he made sure everything was in order. And then what is the last word we ever hear from Nehemiah? Now you've got to remember that chronologically the Bible ends in the Old Testament at the end of Nehemiah. Chronologically the end of Nehemiah. In our Bibles, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. But Malachi actually sits between Nehemiah's time and he's there in the beginning of the book from 1 to 12. And then Malachi happens in Nehemiah's absence. And then you have Nehemiah chapter 13. So the last word that they ever hear from God's Word for 400 years is this, and it's a prayer. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. That's the last word of the Bible. That's the last word of the man of God, and it's a prayer. All right, that is our text today. Now one of the keys to understanding Nehemiah 13 is you've got to pay close attention to the time markers the Hebrew text is telling us. A casual reader could wrongly surmise that verses 1 to 3 are taking place at that great consecration in chapter 12, but that is not the case. The Bible tells us that is not the case. Nehemiah 13.1 says on that day, that is happening at the same time as verse 6. Verse 1 and verse 6 are happening at the same time. On that day when they read the law that they're not supposed to have an Ammonite, it was that day, verse 6, while this was taking place. See the time markers? I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-sixth year Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered. That's verse 1 is happening with verse 7. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the house of God, and we went back to Scripture and saw that that wasn't what God allowed. So Nehemiah had been cupbearer and and then he became governor of Judah for 12 years. Before that, he served in the king's palace, he served in Artaxerxes' palace, he was the cupbearer, he was the number two in the kingdom, he kept the king from being poisoned, he was his most trusted advisor and Artaxerxes had given him leave because he did something he was never supposed to do he, he had a sad face one day you were never supposed to be sad, you saw the king, you're always supposed to be happy because I'm here with the king, isn't that wonderful with the king, it's a great job and you could never, and he was, he was sad one day, and he was sad because he was thinking about what was happening in Israel and how the, the house of God and the walls were in ruins and things weren't the way they should be and he couldn't hide it, and the king was shocked, he said you're not sick, what's the deal, this must be sickness of heart what's going on he's like uh <laughs> and he prays real quick oh god he could kill me here because you're never supposed to be and he's like my king i'm sad because of the, of the situation of my people and so artaxerxes go, says go back and fix that all right so so nehemiah went back to build jerusalem's walls and put the house of judah back in order he did that for about 12 years and then nehemiah was supposed to return back to the king and back to the job that he was originally given in the king's court in the Persian citadel of Susa. Now between chapter 12 and chapter 13, this is exactly what happens. You have uh, Nehemiah returning to the Persian citadel in Susa. And what happens when Nehemiah leaves? And they all lived happily ever after. That often comes up in Disney. Doesn't often come up in history. Does not come up in the Bible. Uh, Once Nehemiah left, Satan's minions and their double-minded collaborators started to retake the ground they had been forced to cede under Nehemiah's godly leadership. Now, how long was Nehemiah gone? That's a good question. The journey from Jerusalem to Susa was 55 days each way, roughly. And Nehemiah would have had a a season of service before his king as well. So he had to be gone at least one year. That's the minimum amount of time that could have transpired between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And we know from some extra-biblical literature that there was another governor in Judah's name and the year that he is mentioned. And so that gives us a maximum time of 50. years so nehemiah is gone between one year and 15 years that's all we know that's how long however long he was gone one year two years five years 10 years up to 15 years it was long enough for god's enemies to set their plans in motion among god's people it was long enough for the double-minded collaborators to feel comfortable enough That they could get away with their deviation without any retaliation. Friends, when the cat's away, the mice will play. So, take in our chapter again and understand these time markers because it's really important. Verse 1's, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Verse 1 is happening absolutely simultaneously with Nehemiah tossing out Tobiah the toady from the house of God. From his special apartment that's supposed to be a storeroom for God's work. Whereas, verse 4 is happening before. It says now before verse 1 is happening. Now, before this is happening. Sometime between chapter 12's uh, final acts of Nehemiah as governor to Nehemiah's return 1-15 to years later. It is in Nehemiah's absence that God raises up the prophet Malachi to condemn the corruption that happens in the priesthood. In those 1 to 15 years, that's when Malachi happens. Some very stern words come against the priesthood because they quickly corrupt themselves to make a buck. And it is in Nehemiah's absence that Tobiah the toady inserts his presence creating a sinful abscess that the godly leader must lance or the infection will destroy the nation. And this brings us to the first point today. If you look in your outlines today, it's point one. It is this. Old foes don't just go away. They must be actively kept at bay. Old foes don't just go away. They must be actively kept at bay at bay. And and you're going to see more than one in this passage because God wants to make sure we hear this. The first old foe who didn't just go away but must be actively kept at bay was Tobiah the toady. Verse 4 says, Now before this, Eliasheb the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, the grain, the wine, the oil, and they were given commandments to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went back to Persia to be with that king. And after some time, 1 to 15 years, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And when I did, what did he see? He saw Tobiah the toady had been given the keys to God's house by a priest who was appointed to run the storerooms. A priest by the name of Eliashev. So, lest you forget, Tobiah the toady is the scoundrel all throughout the book. Who's You have big, bad Sambalat the awful, and next to him is little skinky, skulky, yeah. Snealing, snivering, toady, Tobiah. And, and he says things like we looked at last week in chapter 4 when Sanballat uh, tries to discourage the people of God from rebuilding the walls and Tobiah the toady adds his two cents after his boss makes fun of him saying, with your building, even if a fox climbed on it, <laughs> it would break down those walls of stone. You can hear him, right? I think that's what he sounds like in the Hebrew, I'm not sure. It sounds like when I read it. Anyway, Tobiah did not go away, friends. Nehemiah's presence kept him at bay, but he didn't go away. He simply waited for an opportune moment, and he found it, and so he slyly reinserted himself this time in God's holy temple, the audacity of the toady. Now Tobiah is a daring and persistent enemy, my friends who knows how to cultivate strategic supporters. He knew he needed an inn in the priesthood, so he found one, and he got one. Never underestimate the Tobias of this world. Never underestimate the Tobias of this world. Just as Tobiah the toady returned, so did Sanballat the Horonite. Uh, verse twenty-eight says, "And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliasheb the high priest, you couldn't go any farther in the service of God than the high priest, and it was the, his son was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So, it's the grandson of the high priest marries into the family of the great enemy of the people of God. All of the days of Nehemiah's life." Sanbalat is the chief antagonist of this book. And he's not just permitted proximity, but he marries into the high priest's family. Satan wants in. And he wants as far in as will let him come. Now, friend, who authorized these abominations? And that's what they are, they're biblical abominations who sanctioned the emptying of God's storehouse to house God's enemy, Tobiah the toady, who permitted the corruption of the priesthood, engaging not just in foreign intermarriages, but, but, but an unholy alliance with the most strident enemy of God, Sanballat? And the answer to that is shocking. It was Eliasheb the high priest, verse 28, and Eliasheb the regular priest, verse 4. The people who were supposed to be guarding the hen house were the compromisers. Eliashev was a common name for a Jew in the post-Exilic period. It meant God repays or God leads back. And if you've been led back and you're wanting God to rebuild, you might name your kid Eliashev. Eliasheb, the priest of verse 4, is never referred to as high priest because he's not, and he's doing a job too lowly for the high priest. The Bible says that he's supervising the storerooms of the temple. He's sort of like a mid level clerk in the priesthood. The high priest would have people to do that for him. And so some of you remember James Boyce, who was a, a phenomenal voice for the Lord. He pastored 10th Street Presbyterian before the Lord took him on to glory in Philadelphia, I believe. James Boyce hypothesizes why would these two Eliashebs have done these wicked things? Why would they do these wicked things? He says this. Boyce writes in his commentary, probably because the Eliashebs would have said, we're living in a new day. Nehemiah has returned to Babylon. His, his old style of aggressive leadership, that's uh, all right in the past. But, but it's not politically astute for this time. What we need today is compromise, a a building of bridges, a a handout to old friends. Can you hear how that is said? The old evangelist Vance Habner, who was just a phenomenal speaker for the Lord Jesus, he's gone on to his reward. The old evangelist Vance Habner wisely noted, today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within Than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches, he's joining them. Now he said that, and he's been dead for 20 or 30 years. Warren Wiersbe, another great man of God, uh, he's on the radio, he's written a bunch of commentaries, uh, is equally prescient when he writes about this passage. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, it doesn't take long for the enemy to capture leadership. And too often the people will blindly follow their leaders in the path of compromise and disobedience. Without spiritual leadership, God's people are prone to stray like sheep. God knew that, so he gave them shepherds. One successful pastor told Wiersbe, quote, if we didn't keep our eyes on this work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would be invaded and it would soon fall apart. Overseers do what? They oversee. That's how God designed it. Friends, this is why God gifts the church with shepherds and overseers. Biblical shepherds are to see off hired hands and ravenous wolves who masquerade as shepherds. The Bible teaches that we must be discerning or we will be deceived. The Bible teaches that the enemy masquerades as an angel of light. And he sends his minions to be our ministers. He seeks out compromisers. He's looking for an opening. Uh, There was a writer, the late InterVarsity author. He was a New Tribes missionary and medical doctor. Uh, His name is John White, and and he wrote fairly prolifically. He's also gone on to be with Jesus. John White wrote regarding Nehemiah's boldness in our passage. In in taking the the tough stand of throwing Tobiah the toady out of the temple and all of his junk onto the curb, and and chasing off the high priest's own grandson, do you think there was some political challenge for that? It was a bold, brave leader. It was the right thing to do, but it took a bold, brave leader. And here is what John White writes: "Quote in Christian work, our cowardice in avoiding unpleasantness is currently doing more damage than any damage from irascibility on the part of Christian leaders. The church has become flabby, inept, unwilling to act. And then he writes this: Who are we?" who condone every manner of evil in our midst to criticize those rare leaders who do not hesitate to act when the integrity of God's temple is in question. Hmm. Friends, I would like for you to pray that Calvary would have Nehemiah's at the helm, not Eliashep's, or we will have Tobias and Sanballat slithering in wherever and however they can get in. Church, hear this, know this, believe this, old foes don't go away, they must be actively kept at bay. Old foes do not go away, they must be actively kept at bay. So too it is true, we find point two today, old temptations don't abate, they just sit back and lie in wait. Old temptations don't abate, they just sit back and lie in wait. What were the three things the people of God pledged to be faithful to do back in Nehemiah 10? When they had that big celebration of consecration, they were going to follow the Lord, they repented, and they consecrated, and they covenanted, we will do certain things. Well, if you turn back with me to page 513 in the Blue Pew Bible, it'll take you to Nehemiah 10, and you're going to zero in on three specific pledges. The people of God made an oath before God that they would do. And one to 15 years later, they weren't doing so well in what they pledged. The Word of God says in Nehemiah 10 and verse 30, Nehemiah 10 and verse 30, they pledged, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath, on the holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. And we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God for showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, for the Sabbath the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all of the work in the house of our God. That's what they all pledged as a people all together. Their leaders led them and their people followed them. So, God's people in their history had been repeatedly ensnared in unholy marriages. And so in Nehemiah 10, they pledged, we're not going to do that anymore. We've learned our lesson. And God's people had repeatedly desecrated the Sabbath in their history. So they, they made a pledge, we're going to keep the Sabbath holy. And God's people had abandoned all the principles God had set out in godly giving. And so God's work was languishing. So they vowed, we're not going to forsake this anymore. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. We're going to support God's work and God's worker that the the work of the Lord would flourish among us. And now we're just three chapters later. We're three chapters later. We're three chapters later. We're one to 15 years later. That's it. And God's people are wantonly engaging in everything they renounced in their previous pledging. Why? Why? Because 150 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah was right. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Because 260 years from today, Robert Robinson was right when he wrote, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God makes us saints, but we start out as sinners. And until we get to glory, that sinner is always vying to not have you be the saint God wants you to be. Amen? I feel it. And if you're honest, you do too. Therefore, we must always remember the warning. Of one Corinthians ten twelve, you might want to write it in your Bibles here. One Corinthians ten twelve. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We must remember the admonition of one Peter five eight to be sober minded. That is, pay attention, <laughs> be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone who's not being watchful and sober minded to devour. Because, friends, Hebrews 12 is staggeringly accurate. Hebrews 12 says, there is a sin that easily entangles. Now, I don't know what that sin is in your life. And it can move around as you graduate out of it. But there will always be a sin that easily entangles until the day when you no longer feel the pull of sin because you no longer have this body of flesh. You no longer live in this world corrupted by sin. You see Jesus face to face. But all of this is necessary, friends. Those verses are all New Testament warnings to you and I. Because old temptations don't abate. They just lie in wait. But don't lose heart. The Gospel is good news. That's the bad news. There's good news. If points one and two are the bad news, point three is the good news. You ready for it? Use a little good news in 2019 friends old remedies don't fail we often just fail to utilize them old remedies don't fail we just fail too often to utilize them in nehemiah 13:8, we're told nehemiah became very angry and threw all the household items of tobiah out of the chamber now friends, that's the very same righteous indignation we had already seen back in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, when Nehemiah discovered the rampant exploitation of the poor among the Israelites by other Israelites, the Bible says in Nehemiah 5, 6, I was very angry, and I heard their outcry in these words, and I had to take counsel with myself, I had to stop myself from acting in anger, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah's righteous indignation at the desecration of God's temple. Well, that echoes our Lord's righteous indignation when He saw God's temple desecrated in His day. And He made a whip, and He drove them out in righteous anger. The second old remedy that worked well that Nehemiah used twice in our Bible passages is that Nehemiah was willing to rebuke powerful officials who permitted wickedness amongst the people. He does it in verse 11. The Bible says, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And he does it again in verse 17. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? This is the exact same strategy Nehemiah used back in chapter 5. In dealing with the ruthless who were oppressing the helpless among God's people. Nehemiah 5.7 says, I brought charges against the nobles and against the officials. It wasn't politically expedient. These were powerful people. But someone needed to call a spade a spade and say, this must stop. And a bold, godly leader will do that. He said, you were exacting interest each from the other. It was in violation of the Old Testament code. In verse 19, Nehemiah's solution to the prevention of Sabbath desecration was the exact same solution he used to prevent invasion. Do you remember in in, in chapter 7 how Nehemiah prevented invasion? Well, in verse 19, in our chapter, the Bible says, as soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, he commands what? He commands the doors to be shut, and he gave orders that they should not be opened, and then he posted his own guards that he trusted to prevent anyone from entering. That's the same strategy he used in Nehemiah 7.3 when he thought the invaders might come. The Bible says in Nehemiah 7.3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And some stood at their posts and some in front of their own homes." And here's what I want to show you here. Don't miss this. I want you to notice that Nehemiah didn't have to reinvent the wheel. He simply had to return to the tested, proven ideal. There were best practices and there were biblical practices and that's where he took them. A lot of our victory as a church and in our lives is going to come from a simple combination of vigilance, are we paying attention, and perseverance, are we staying the course. A lot of our victory will just come from vigilance and perseverance. You show me a Christian or a church that's falling apart, that once was following... It's usually a failure in vigilance. Were you paying attention? Or in perseverance, did you continue doing when it became unpleasant to do? So friends, are we paying attention? Or are we letting down our guard in our homes, in our lives, in our church? Are we consistently applying Scripture's counsel? Or are we growing fairly lax in its its application? equally in Nehemiah in chapter 13 Nehemiah is the same godly man that we met in the other 12 chapters Nehemiah is not a different guy he's the same guy he still is fervent in his zeal for the Lord Nehemiah still is the masterful organizer and mighty motivator we've met in the other 12 chapters we see that in chapter 13 he's still the man of action we saw in the other 12 chapters he's still brutally blunt with both friend and foe if you needed to hear it a true friend will tell you what you need to hear And Nehemiah was a true friend, but he wasn't always befriended for it. He is still full of a holy boldness, willing to confront when needed, and he will put himself and his own safety on the line to protect them. He's willing to go out and fight, old as he is, and not just sit back and hope somebody else does it for him. But the thing that chapter 13 most impresses me, and I hope it most impresses you, is Nehemiah 13 goes out of its way to say, that Nehemiah, the biblical leader, is still Nehemiah, the prayer warrior. We met him in the beginning of the book, and he was praying. We meet him at the end of the book, and he's still praying. As one writer observed, a man who approaches God on his knees will stand tall in any generation. Amen? A man who approaches God on his knees will stand tall in any generation. Four times in chapter 13, Nehemiah is praying. Three times he prays for the Lord to remember His faithfulness in the face of gross wickedness. And one time he prays to the God of justice for God to remember the evildoers and their desecration of their sacred priestly obligation. God, get them. Work this out. It's bigger than me. I'll stand for you, but you've got to show up because these guys are deeply immersed. I want you to notice our book ends with one final arrow prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. For good. Nehemiah did good even when things were bad. He did hard things even when many others chose the path of least resistance all around him. Nehemiah looked to the Lord's justice to ultimately give him recompense when lots of people probably didn't like what he had to say. Friends, it's always right to do right, but it's seldom easy. Amen? It's always right to do right, but it's seldom easy. It is always right to stand for Jesus, but sometimes our standing will make us stick out in a world where everyone else is seated. In those times, remember the final prayer of Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Friends, the old remedies don't fail, but we often fail to utilize them. In Jeremiah 6.16, it's a good verse, you might want to write it down. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says, The Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Walk in it. And find rest for your souls. James 4 urges us to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James 5 reminds us, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. One man just like us. Changed the course of biblical history. Jesus in Mark 9.29 explains it like this. We're going to come up to some things where this kind can only come out by... What was He facing? Demons. He was facing the ultimate opposition clothed in human flesh. And the answer was, that kind can only come out by by prayer there are things that we can't technique our way out of we can't gift our way out of we can't organize our way out of we can't uh, galvanize our way out of we can only ask the lord and pray our way out of faith moves but we often have not because we do we believe that church you see the old remedies don't fail we just often fail to 2 Corinthians 10 reminds us, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not with the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that's set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As we think of our neighbor and his need for the Savior, remember Romans 16, friend. And be not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. A simple believer with a simple gospel is simply effective, because that is how God has chosen to reach people for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your soul. For the old remedies don't fail. We fail to utilize them. I want to leave you today with two thoughts, and then we're going to pray. A little over 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton Riley noted, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I'm going to say that again. The Christian ideal has not been found, not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. General William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, once said to a group of of new Salvation Army officers, I want you young men to always bear in mind that it's the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. There's Booth again. I want you young men to always bear in mind that it's the nature of a fire to peter out. So you must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. Nehemiah discovered that the fires of devotion had gone out in Jerusalem, and so he stoked them. I don't know if they went out in one year or 15, but they went out, and they went out in every sector. What was very bright for Jesus became very dark. May we be like He and re-stoke fires and homes and hearts and churches for the glory of God. Amen? Because old foes don't just go away. They must be actively kept at bay. Old temptations don't abate. They just lie in wait. And old remedies don't fail. We just too often fail to utilize them. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to our neighbor and pray to our Savior. Now some of you, uh, maybe uh, you're new to praying. Maybe some of you are are very shy. You could pray with someone next to you and you could let them pray out loud. You could just pray in your heart. Nobody's going to judge you. But the Bible encourages us to be a house of prayer. So if you can, even if it's a little bit challenging, consider turning to your neighbor and praying to your Savior about those three things. And if you need to, pray in your own heart. We love you, but we do want to be praying. Let's pray, and then in just a moment, I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, you call us to be a house of prayer. That puts us in situations that are sometimes uncomfortable, but it's biblical. Help us, Lord, to be able to reach out to you, whether that's in the quietness of our heart praying alongside another or in the quietness of our heart praying to ourselves or whether it's with our neighbor uh, praying to the Savior. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that old foes don't go away. They must be actively kept at bay. Or there are going to be those who oppose, and they go away for a season, and that doesn't mean they've gone away forever. And uh, there will be new ones with new names that emerge if the old one is submerged, because there's a real enemy, and he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And you tell us in your word that that all of us were under the influence of the ruler of the kingdom of the air when we, like them, uh, were dead in sin. And so Lord, uh, it's not that person that's causing the problem, That's the ultimate enemy, it's the ultimate enemy, and yet it comes clothed in a person. And uh, so help us to be wise, to in some cases be weary, to, to we're always going to be gracious, but we also recognize that in some situations people have making it clear what their real intentions are, and, and we need to be honest with that reality. And in other situations people might be genuine in wanting to make a change, so give us Give us that Solomonic wisdom, Lord, to be shrewd as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Remind us of Joshua that we have not been this way before. Help us not to be naive that we would be deceived, but also help us not to be hopeless and heartless, but gracious and cautious. We pray, Lord, thinking about the fact that old temptations temptations do not abate. They just sit back and lie in wait. There is a sin that easily entangles each of us. And I don't know what that is for each person, but I'm suspicious we each know what it is for us. And so we ask that you would help us, for Jesus' sake, to be able to see your power overcome it. In our weakness, your strength is displayed. We know our weakness because we know we keep falling into whatever this is, and we ask that you would give us strength this week uh, to to do what James says, to to repent and clean our hands and not be double-minded, to draw near to God that you might draw near to us. We believe you when you tell us the devil will flee as we do so, even as we... Uh, recognize that the temptation won't ultimately abate, but we don't have to give in. We think of our Lord Jesus, who was tempted in all points and received the maximum level of temptation because he never once gave in. And so what looks impossible is possible because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Help us to lean on Christ and one another, if need be, to pray with one another if there is a besetting thing, whether it's with our tongues or our eyes or our hearts or our hands or whatever it is. We want to use the members of our body in worship because Romans tells us that's our spiritual act of worship to do those things in love for you. We pray, Lord, that we would remember that old remedies don't fail, but we often fail to utilize them. We will never outgrow prayer in the ministry of the Word. We will never outgrow the ancient paths where it's good. So we need to learn to walk in those ways. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a church that, that stays focused on the fundamentals, that we would be a church of prayer and the ministry of the Word, that we would be a church that loves like 1 Corinthians 13, that doesn't keep a record of wrongs and uh, thinks the best of the other party and uh, always trusts and always believes, but, but also that we would be wise... And we would be careful, and we would understand that there are people in situations because of their brokenness, because of their sinfulness, where they try to exploit grace to achieve their own ends. And uh, that's not okay. Lord, would you give us strong biblical leaders? Uh, would you give us people who have a fist of iron and a glove of velvet so the touch we receive is gentle like our Savior, but unmoving like our Savior? Jesus came full of grace and truth, and we tend to be good at one of those or none of those. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would help us to be more like You in these ways. Lord, would You use this church to make disciples? Would You take people here who, who, who maybe don't come to church and make them regular? Would You take regulars and make them servants? Would You take servants and make them leaders? And take leaders and make them help in other areas, Lord, and, and other places, Lord? Would You help us be a church that makes a kingdom impact and not just an empire impact? Lord we pray that this would be a safe place that many would come to Christ at Calvary and through the people of Calvary and and very often in church history it's not the pulpit and the preacher that brings people to Christ it's the simple witness of its people a great number of priests came to faith in the book of Acts the the least likely to come to faith and and, uh, a great number was added to them daily because they were sharing and living in such a way that it was attractive they were a perfume in a room and not a stench in the trench help us this week to be your witnesses to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything you've commanded. Help us to remember that, lo, you'll be with us always. We don't do this on our own strength. We do this through Christ and through the prompting of your spirit, because you have works prepared in advance for us to do. We are yours. You are our king. You run our life. You run this church. May we run it to the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.